Section 38 of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Reviews by Oscar Wilde. Edited by Robert Ross. Section 38. Minor and Minor Poets. Pall Mall Gazette, February 1st. 1887. The conditions that precede artistic production are so constantly treated as qualities of the work of art itself, that one sometimes is tempted to wish that all art were anonymous. Yet there are certain forms of art so individual in their utterance, so purely personal in their expression, that for a full appreciation of their style and manner some knowledge of the artist's life is necessary. To this class belongs Mr. Skipsey's Carols from the Coalfields, a volume of intense human interest and high literary merit, and we are consequently glad to see that Dr. Spence Watson has added a short biography of his friend to his friend's poems, for the life and the literature are too indissolubly wedded ever really to be separated. Joseph Skipsey, Dr. Watson tells us, was sent into the coal-pits at Percy, Maine, near North Shields, when he was seven years of age. Young as he was, he had to work from twelve to sixteen hours in the day, generally in the pitch dark, and in the dreary winter months, he saw the sun only upon Sundays. When he went to work, he had learned the alphabet, and to put of two letters together. But he was really his own schoolmaster, and taught himself to write, for example, by copying the letters from printed bills or notices, when he could get a candle-end, his paper being the trap-door, which it was his duty to open and shut as the wagons passed through, and his pen a piece of chalk. The first book he really read was the Bible, and not content with reading it, he learned by heart the chapters which specially pleased him. When sixteen years old, he was presented with a copy of Lindley Murray's Grammar, by the aid of which he gained some knowledge of the structural rules of English. He had already become acquainted with Paradise Lost, and was another proof of Matthew Pryor's axiom, who often reads will sometimes want to write. For he had begun to write verse when only a bonny pit lad. For more than forty years of his life he laboured in the cold, dark underground, and is now the caretaker of a board school in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. As for the qualities of his poetry, they are its directness and its natural grace. He has an intellectual as well as metrical affinity with Blake, and possesses something of Blake's marvellous power of making simple things seem strange to us, and strange things seem simple. How delightful, for instance, is this little poem. Get up, the caller cries, get up, and in the dead of night, to win the bairns their bait and sup, I rise a weary white. My flannel dudden donned thrice o, my birds are kissed, and then I with a whistle shut the door, I may not ope again. How exquisite and fanciful this stray lyric! The wind comes from the west to-night, so sweetly down the lane he bloweth, upon my lips with pure delight, from head to foot my body gloweth. Where did the wind, the magic find, to charm me thus? Say, heart that knoweth, within a rose on which he blows, before upon thy lips he bloweth. 
we admit that Mr. Skipsey's work is extremely unequal, but when it is at its best it is full of sweetness and strength, and though he has carefully studied the artistic capabilities of language, he never makes his form formal by over-polishing. Beauty with him seems to be an unconscious result, rather than a conscious aim. His style has all the delicate charm of chance. We have already pointed out his affinity to Blake, but with Burns also he may be said to have a spiritual kinship, and in the songs of the Northumbrian minor we meet with something of the Asia peasant's wild gaiety and mad humour. He gives himself up freely to his impressions, and there is a fine careless rapture in his laughter. The whole book deserves to be read, and much of it deserves to be loved. Mr. Skipsey can find music for every mood, whether he is dealing with the real experiences of the pitman, or with the imaginative experiences of the poet, and his verse has a rich variety about it. In these latter days of shallow rhymes it is pleasant to come across someone to whom poetry is a passion, not a profession. Mr. F. B. Doveton belongs to a different school. In his amazing versatility he reminds us of the gentleman who wrote the immortal handbills for Mrs. Jarley, for his subjects range from Dr. Carter Moffat and the ammonia foam to Mr. Whitley, Lady Bicyclists, and the immortality of the soul. His verses in praise of Zoedone are a fine example of diodatic poetry. His elegy on the death of Jumbo is quite up to the level of the subject, and the stanzas on a watering place. Who of it merits can e'er think meanly, scattering ozone to all the land, are well worthy of a place in any shilling guide-book. Mr. Doveton divides his poetry into grave and gay, but we like him least when he is amusing, for in his merriment there is but little melody, and he makes his muse grin through a horse-collar. When he is serious he is much better, and his descriptive poems show that he has completely mastered the most approved poetical phraseology. Our old friend Boreas is as burly as ever, Zephyrs are consistently amorous, and the welking rings, upon the smallest provocation. Birds are the feathered host, or the sylvian throng. The wind wantons o'er the lea, vernial gaze murmur to crystal rills. And Lampier's dictionary supplies the Latin names for the sun and the moon. Armed with these daring and novel expressions, Mr. Doveton indulges in fierce moods of nature-worship, and botanizes recklessly through the provinces. Now and then, however, we come across some pleasing passages. Mr. Doveton apparently is an enthusiastic fisherman, and sings merrily of the enchanting grayling and the crimson and gold trout that rise to the craft of the angler's feathered while. Still, we fear that he will never produce any real good work till he has made up his mind whether destiny intends him for a poet or for an advertising agent, and we venture to hope that should he ever publish another volume, he will find some other rhyme to vision than Elysian, a dissonance that occurs five times in this well-meaning but tedious volume. As for Mr. Ashby Sterry, those who object to the new Dunart should at once read his lays of The Lazy Minstrel and be converted, for over these poems the milliner, not the muse, presides, and the result is a little alarming. 
as the Chelsea sage investigated the philosophy of clothes, so Mr. Ashby Sterry has set himself to discover the poetry of petticoats, and seems to find much consolation in the thought that, though art is long, skirts are worn short. He is the only peddler who has claimed Parnassus, since Autolycus sang of Lawn as white of driven snow, Cypress black as air was crow, and his details are amazing as his diminutives. He is capable of penning a canto to a crinoline, and has a pathetic melody on a mackintosh. He sings of pretty pluckers and pliant pleats, and is eloquent on frills, frocks, and camisettes. The latest French fashions stir him to a fine frenzy, and the sight of a pair of Balmoral boots thrills him with absolute ecstasy. He writes rondels on ribbons, lyrics on linen and lace, and his most ambitious ode is addressed to a tomboy in trouserettes. Yet his verse is often dainty and delicate, and many of his poems are full of sweet and pretty conceits. Indeed, of the tens at summer-time he writes so charmingly, and with such felicious grace of epithet, that we cannot but regret that he has chosen to make himself the poet of petticoats, and the troubadour of trouserettes. 1. Carols from the Coalfields and Other Songs and Ballads by Joseph Skipsey, Walter Scott 2. Sketches in Prose and Verse by F. B. Doveton Sampson Lowe, Marston and Co. 3. The Lazy Minstrel by J. Ashby Sterry, Fisher Unwin End of section 38 Minor and Minor Poets